Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January 31st, 2018. It is the last day of the first month of 2018. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. I'll leave it at that because the song of the day today will kind of drive that point home for you. What are we going to talk about today? It is a Wednesday, and even though we worked in an interview on Tuesday this week, we'll have another interview today. Jeff Ryland is going to be on. He is a commercial agriculture and biotechnology guy. He's striving to feed the world, as he puts it. He's a designer of healthy, productive landscapes that enable resilient communities. Jeff has a business called Abundant Design LLC, and he really focuses on getting permaculture into places where it generally wouldn't be thought of as showing up, like the suburbs, right in the middle of the blue hair HOAs and things like that. He's going to talk to us today about how his business does that, ideas for doing it for yourself and more. I'm sure we'll center in a little bit on just business principles in general, uh, which is always good to be talking about in the world of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Uh, when you take something like permaculture and business, put it together, you're feeding yourself and being able to maintain an income. That's about as self-sufficient as you can get in the modern world. We'll have Jeff Dawn in just a minute to talk about all that and more. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. They're one of the, the you know rare occasions that we bring on a new sponsor, the two that we brought on this year. ButcherBox is awesome. Imagine this. It's near the you know first week of the month is probably when you'd set it up for, and you come home, I don't know, Tuesday or Wednesday, and there's a big box on your doorstep. You take that box inside and you open it up, and what's in there? Meat. Lots and lots of meat and sitting right on the top. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing, uh, naturally cured bacon. And you pull the bacon away and underneath there is just amazing pastured pork and free-range grass-fed beef and all kinds of really great stuff. Uh, beyond organic chicken, it's all in there. It's waiting for you. And you take it, you put it in your freezer, maybe you take one out and you cook it for dinner that night. That's what, that's what ButcherBox does. It's like having a personal shopper go out and pick the best cuts of meat. When you look at the quality of the meat, if you, if you were to go somewhere, you can get meat of the quality they provide you. It's not expensive. It costs about the same as going out and buying at the store, but it shows up at your house. And if you're an MSB member, you can get $10 off every order, which you can apply to more of that amazing bacon and get, well, free bacon for life. Check it out at butcherbox.com. Next up today, harvest eating. Well, if you got all that wonderful meat, you're going to want to be able to cook it. And maybe you're not a natural chef. Maybe you need to learn some cooking, get some good ingredients to cook with, like some amazing seasoning mixes. Well, you'll find that all at harvesteating.com. Chef Keith has that paleo beef course. That goes good with your butcher box, doesn't it? He's got a food storage feast course. He's got an amazing blog. He's got great products. He's a great guy. He's a member of our expert council, and he agrees with me in something I think that's very important. Two things, really. Cooking is a life skill. It's something everybody should be able to do. And two, cooking is about technique over recipe. Everybody wants a recipe here, a recipe that, a recipe this. If you know how to cook, you don't really rely on recipes. You rely on what I call the harmonies of food. Certain things go together, certain things don't, right? I mean, that's just how food works. 
And uh, Chef Keith teaches cooking from that viewpoint. He'll give you recipes, but each recipe teaches a technique. To learn more, check out HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year in history for this episode. We are up to the year 98. We have one from David Verne in the year 98. Trajan comes to power. After Nerva dies from a stroke on January 27th, Trajan travels to Rome from his post along the Rhine. When he enters Rome, he does so walking, without ceremony, and wearing common clothes. This wins over the people, and the Senate realizes that he is someone they can work with. Trajan defers to them in a speech and appears to turn back to the principate method of rule as one man among equals. In reality, he is as much an autocrat as Domitian, but unlike Domitian, Trajan was respectful toward the Senate and sought their approval for new policies, even though they didn't actually have a say. Trajan keeps a close eye on the budget and manages to maintain a balanced budget without additional taxes. He also cements the welfare reforms that Nerva enacted. These reforms would give loans to farmers, and these loans would be paid back over time, which funded the grain dole in Rome. He also greatly reduced a massive central bureaucracy created by Domitian and relied instead on his provincial governors. Trajan understood the governors had a much better idea of the unique needs of the people in their province and had no intention of micromanaging his governors. And when they wrote to him asking his opinion on a policy, he would politely tell them, go figure it out yourself. My take by David Verne. Trajan cementing his rule in Rome was part of his larger plan to go to war with Dacia. The Dacian king, Debaculus, had spent the years since the last war well, using the yearly Roman tribute to build large fortification network throughout the mountains. Debaculus had also exploited Dacia's large deposits of gold and silver and iron with a massive army of, with a possible 200,000 warriors that could be raised. Trajan didn't have a problem with Dacia's independence, The problem was that Debaculus continued to act hostile towards Rome. I didn't want to shut off that tribute faucet. That might get their sh their attention, you know? Just just a thought there. But I I know people are going to like hate on me for this, but I, I see shades of, of, of this Trajan character in Donald Trump with his speech last night. You know, the Democrats can grice all they want. Nancy Pelosi at times, she looked like she was crapping her pants in an adult diaper. Uh, it was just it was it was comical to watch. Uh, I'm not you know on the Trump train or fully you know in, in, you know entrusting anybody in government, but Trump is a hell of a populist, and I think he's winning over a lot of people, including a lot of centrist Democrats. And I'm not talking about people serving government. I'm talking about the people that actually vote in elections. Uh, I think you're going to see a landslide for Trump in re-election. I, I really do. And I think people that don't think that's going to happen are praying for uh, impeachment or whatever are just deluding themselves because they still can't accept the fact that this guy's our president. And, and I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about position. I'm talking about presentation. Um, I, I don't think that Trump was a good politician when he started, but I think he's becoming a masterful one. And, and the, the importance of understanding that is, this is what I mean with Trajan. He painted a picture of himself that people embraced. It wasn't necessarily the reality. That's what, quote-unquote, good politicians do. Note that good is not a, 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 you know, a statement on their, their integrity or their morality. Good is a statement on their effectiveness. So I can say that you're a good murderer, right? That doesn't mean that I approve of what you're doing, but you might be good at it. 
right? That's that's what I mean when I say Trump's becoming a hell of a politician, very Trojan-esque, if that's such a thing. Anyway, with that, let me remind you guys uh, that if you like this show, you want to support us, and you want us to always be here. The easiest thing you can do to make sure that happens is join the MSB. You join the Member Support Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. When you do that, you will get so many discounts, your membership will pay for itself. Um, I just got a bunch of gun adapters in from gunadapters.com. I saved 15% on my purchase. I actually had like $98 worth of gun adapter stuff in my cart, and the discount we get in MSB is 10% under $100, but 15% over $100. I bought another inexpensive shotgun adapter, a little... Uh, uh, 12 gauge to 28 gauge just for the fun of it I, o- I basically almost got it for free because of that extra 5% I mean it was it was really a great deal and I that's just one example of the, all the deals you guys know that like it's, it's planting time I've got a bunch of discounts for you with plants seeds stuff like that I just got a big order in from any seeds I used my own discount 20% off an order with any seeds and I was ordering a lot for cover cropping that 20% saved me over 20 bucks. I bought over $100 worth of seeds from any seed. That's what I'm talking about. Just a couple things here and there over the year. Your membership pays for itself, and you support the show. Win-win. That's what I try to bring to you guys. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into our uh, discussion today with our special guest, Jeff Ryland. Again, Jeff is a permaculturist doing work right in the belly of the beast in suburban America. And with that, hey, Jeff, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, you know, we got you on to talk about permaculture in the suburbs, uh, doing it from a landscaping standpoint, things like that. Before we dig into that, which is a great topic, by the way, can you tell people who, who the heck is Jeff Ryland? Take us back to, like, I don't know, you're sitting in study hall, trying to get the courage to ask some girl out that's across from you or something in 11th grade, trying to figure out what to do with your life, and, and how do you end up where you are? Well, as study, study hall thoughts, at the time, I had really no idea what I was going to do. I was really good in science in high school. Actually, the valedictorian in my high school class won a science award. Um, but when I went to college, I didn't have a lot of direction. I thought maybe I wanted to be maybe an artist and then a park ranger. So from there, I took uh, a lot of environmental science courses, ended up uh, doing an internship at Wind Cave National Park. But I guess probably while I was in study hall, we were me and a couple of buddies, we were always talking about trapping or hunting and what we were going to do after school or that weekend. Kind of the natural resources aspect was where I was headed. After college, the, those jobs were pretty competitive and there were a lot of temporary seasonal jobs. And I didn't feel like at the time that I had a lot of way to go about doing that. I thought, well, I gotta, I'm out of college. I got to have a full-time job, pay my loans back. So I went into science. I really tried to get on at uh, Pioneer. We did some field mapping and GPS stuff with uh, soil nutrient maps, and that was actually really cool. Uh, they ended up closing that part of the business. That, I took a little way, a lot of experience with that. And then from there, I just moved in with some buddies into their basement since we got laid off and started landscaping down in the Des Moines metro area. And that uh, was fun for a while, you know, stayed fit. I uh, got some sun and was outside, uh, but I felt like I really should be doing something with the science background and that sort of thing. So I went to 
DuPont and worked with some of the newest and greatest seed that they were working with through a temp agency and then got on with to vaccine production for veterinary vaccines, mostly cattle, uh, we had cat and horse and things like that. And from there, I was really trying to get on with Pioneer. We were, I had just gotten married. We were going to have a baby and the veterinary field wasn't as competitive as what I thought maybe Pioneer would be. I got the call back several months after I applied and I uh, was pretty excited about that position. Uh, when I got that, then my wife was able to stay at home with our first firstborn. Long story short, I was there for about 13 years. Over that time, you know, we started a garden more. We gardened a lot when we were growing up, hunted quite a bit still. And then with uh, Y2K along, we started looking at some survival stuff. I got into the survival podcast and permaculture was kind of peripheral at that time. But as I started listening to you and doing more and more gardening, we had a couple fruit trees, but I hadn't really thought out the plan that much. And I started to learn more and more about permaculture, entrepreneurship. And then with Diego we, at Permaculture Voices, I really started to think about what I can do to uh, get people more healthy food. That was my wife. She was reading a lot of nutrition things and always encouraged us to eat a better diet and it just kind of tied it all together. So permaculture became in my blood and I started Abundant Design about five years ago. So, so, so talk to us about that. How did you actually start that business and how have you built that business? So, you know, growing healthy food was kind of what motivated me. Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, sustainability things with my job and kind of led the bike month and some pollinator stuff. But what really just sent me down that journey was uh, the food aspect. I thought maybe I could start a little garden shop. You know, we could sell all sorts of supplies, host a few classes. But then as the as I got more involved with permaculture, I thought this, since that tied everything together, this is what I think I should be doing. So started a few jobs with some friends. You know, I, I grabbed a few buddies that had started their own business. We had, I took them out to supper and I said, is this a viable plan? And some of them were on board. Some were like, ah, it's kind of iffy. So I took a couple jobs with friends. You know, you pay me minimum wage and then materials. We'll get in there. We'll see what we can do. And built my portfolio up that way and started down that path. And just the business has continued to grow through referrals and through people I've worked with. And it's really taken off. And you did, you know, work with corporate agriculture uh, for quite a bit. So how has that kind of influenced your journey at this point? Well, at this point, I want to focus more on the nutrient-dense food. So at the time, the job was great for our family, and we were feeding the world. It was a, felt like a pretty altruistic move. And just over time, seeing some of the limitations and problems with soil quality and nutrient runoff with the, the Des Moines Waterworks, I don't know if you've seen that in the news. That's been a pretty big lawsuit against several of the drainage districts that they were trying to reduce the nitrate in the water. And so the, those were some of the things that I saw that we could do better. We had a sustainability group that was starting to get involved with. They did some cover crop classes and things like that. So that was good experience, a good learning opportunity. And then with some of the seed treatments, they're getting a lot of bad press. So pollinator health, I got to sit on some committees from that aspect, and we got to put in quite a bit of pollinator habitat. So that was good things, I think, that came out of that. But it also, I think it gave me a lot of street credit, just knowing that a lot of years of experience 
in the food, in the big agriculture system. So I feel like that can be a credit. Although when uh, people would see my truck at the gas station or something like that, they'd be like, wow, that's really great. And I'd give them my car and we'd talk for a minute. And I'd say it was a part-time deal right now. And they'd say, oh, where do you work now? And then after I'd tell them, then they'd kind of, some of them would wrinkle their nose and I wouldn't get a call. So that was <laughs> disappointing. But I, I think it at least it's, it's helped shape me. It's been part of my journey. Gotcha. So, um, when you set up your business, you went with an LLC versus a nonprofit. That's certainly advice I've given. What made you make that decision? Well, I think that was definitely part of it. And then when I was looking at the different models for starting a group or a business or an organization, I felt like with the LLC, I had more control. Whereas in Iowa, with the nonprofit, you would you would have to set up a board. And at that time, I didn't know enough people that were like-minded enough necessarily that I would have felt comfortable with giving some control over, I guess. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then to build the business itself, I just felt like it was easier to buy equipment or raise money without having to fill out a lot of grant proposals and things like that. I, I just wanted to get boots on the ground and shovel in the dirt, I guess. Well, and I don't know that a nonprofit really could work in a you know a landscape style model like that's not like what a land a nonprofit's supposed to do anyway right nonprofits are supposed to provide services to people that that can't afford them right so like i I don't know how somebody would i'm not saying you couldn't build a permaculture style business in a nonprofit entity to do certain things but i can't see how you would ever do it for the purpose of uh, you know, I'm going to show up, Jeff, I'm going to show up at your house with a crew and we're going to transform your, your yard. You, you don't see any, um, let's say, just landscape, regular landscape companies that are not profits. Like you would see True Green Chemlon, donate today to put a garden in near or you know, a lawn in near you. Right. I, I just don't even understand right. how that would ever work. But it does seem to me like there is a certain segment of the permaculture community that's like, I don't know, in some kind of fascination with the concept of it has to be a nonprofit to, to not be evil. But yet we have some nonprofits that are like just terrible companies. And we have some for-profit companies that do amazing things. It's just, it, it's a weird thing to me that we even have to discuss this. But it is something that I think has to be discussed, especially with people that are starting out that, you know, think like, well, I, I can't be permaculture if I'm for profit. That, that, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Right, right. And you look at the um, design principles and obtain a yield. That's definitely in there. So <laughs> yeah. the yield for your labors, and then you can reinvest that into the system. Um, I did interview several nonprofit sort of permaculture landscape groups. And they some of the reasons that they've said that it, it gives you an air of credibility as far as you're not going to try and take advantage of somebody. But then doing a lot of educational type programming so that they had more access to grants. Well, see, and such like if that. you're doing educational business, I could see that being viable, maybe, right? But Right, I, right. I mean, the concept yeah. that, that a nonprofit won't take advantage of somebody, I don't know who you're dealing with, but Jesus. I mean, it's been to Haiti since we gave a, you know, half a billion dollars to the Red Cross for the, for the earthquake 10 years or six years ago. I mean, there's like they, they took the money and ran. So being nonprofit is – I don't understand where that comes from in people. I, I think the the third ethic, the fair share or the return of surplus, I think that was another reason that they had given to. So, I mean, you, you can, I guess it's a worldview thing. Yeah. You know. It's a misunderstanding of legal entities. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> 
<laughs> the purpose of a legal entity. That, that's, that's the anyway. You know, once you you got kind of things together and decide you want to do this, what's kind of been the the biggest challenge you've had in starting or running your business? I don't want to say sound like oh poor me, but it, it, it's felt like there's been a lot of challenges. I mean, just keeping one foot in big agriculture and one foot in permaculture. Um, that was one aspect that was a challenge. Um, balancing it, balancing everything with a full time job, a big family. You know, trying to trying to make it to different meetups and network and uh, I guess the balance, I guess. And then, you know, time for your wife and kids and trying to get all the forms done. It It's just a time bu- time budgeting, I guess I would say, is the biggest challenge. How, how has it been with acquiring customers? I mean, have you had pretty good success with that? I mean, do you stay, do you stay busy with, you know, jobs? It, it actually has been really good. The word of mouth is huge. Um, the social network, if you do a good job for somebody – Especially if they're in a, a company and they're vocal, um, it's a really good good avenue to have. You know, I haven't really spent much on advertising at all. It's, it's been really good to grow that way. And actually, um, last year I was really too busy. I uh, kind of rolled the dice on hoping for to get let go and stuck with uh, my full-time job. And, you know, we lost. So it was really stressful last year trying to keep all the, all the plates spinning. I guess. And, you know, it kind of beat up uh, our family a little bit. You know, just the kids wanted more time. The wife wanted more time. We couldn't travel. We couldn't visit uh, friends and family as much as we wanted to. But uh, it, I guess that's a good problem to have, you know. So we're continuing to grow. Uh, I got a big stack of jobs and designs that I'm working on right now to go into spring. So and I made that leap. So I've got time now uh, to focus focus on abundant design, so I'm, I'm pretty excited this year. That's very cool. I mean, what has been, like, the biggest help in growing your business? You know, you've mentioned, like, social media referrals. Is that probably the biggest shot in the arm? That that really has. Social media has been good, good to me, and uh, the referrals have been outstanding, too. Getting people to fill a review out, whether that's on Google or Facebook or, or House or anything like that, I think that's really good for potential customers to come when they're searching you out um, to see those good good reviews. It's really helpful. Okay. Uh, have you uh, have you noticed like do most of your customers are they aware of permaculture or is it to them it's more like an edible landscaping thing or is it a, is it a balance between the two? You know that that type of thing. It is a balance. Um, probably even I'll throw in a third thing. Just the the natural landscapes too. I'm trying to put a full permaculture design in a suburban lot. Hasn't really, I haven't been able to put in a full permaculture design, you know, with animals and everything, but I've gotten pretty close on a few, but a lot of times, you know, they'll want a a tree guild um, or they'll want a fruit tree and I can suggest a guild and we can put in a guild. I think that while you're doing that work, you're explaining to them the different interactions of the plant, and that helps educate them on permaculture. There are a few people that know about permaculture and will call specifically for that, um, but a lot of it, especially the suburban landscapes, they're they're just looking for more of what you'd expect out of a landscape, but they want more than the limestone walls and spirea, you know? Gotcha. I mean, as you're doing this, do you have any problems like with you know, neighborhood regulations or the neighbors not wanting things to change, things like that? Um, We've been pretty lucky. This last year was probably the most neighbor interaction I've had with concerns over wood chips blowing through into their property or that was actually a mother-in-law of the neighbor. That was kind of hilarious. It was stressful at the time, but just the way it came out with the, the homeowners. 
apologizing and that was that was good. But as we so as we've developed a couple properties, some people were concerned with privacy issues as we had a, a walking path on this one semi-public project and he was worried about people looking at his windows when they're coming by on the path. So we just made move the path just a little bit and put in a row of arborvitae to kind of screen that. Um, otherwise, I think most cus- uh, most neighbors will be pretty interested in what we're doing. And some have even, you know, I've gotten a few uh, referrals that way um, just as they come over and wonder what, what exactly we're doing and kind of explain to them a little bit. And they're like, that's pretty neat. And then a little bit later, we might get a phone call or an email that says, would you come by and look at our yard? That's good. I mean, that's always like in any kind of business like that. That's your hope is that when you're out seeing doing what you're doing, people that are right next door want want the next job because it it sure makes things easier. Um, yeah, definitely. It, it, what's kind of maybe the hardest part of designing in a typical landscape neighborhood? You know, everybody like I always say it's Mister Rogers' neighborhood. There's like four or five houses and they repeat themselves, and everybody has a lollipop tree. You know, right? Uh, I think. The hardest thing about actually the installation and the design process is a lot of, you can get the interactions, the plant guild type effect, but a lot of people like to see mulch on the ground between plants. So not necessarily filling in all the ground cover layer so that they can have a little mulch peeking through um, gives us that new fresh look. Putting in a lot of color helps offset too. You know, if we don't put in a bunch of hostas, you know, as long as they've got some flowering plants, that seems to help. And then winter interest too. A lot of a lot of things can look kind of ragged in the winter, but if you really want to provide habitat for pollinators and beneficial insects and things, you kind of want to delay that fall cleanup. So that's a little bit of a mindset challenge, I guess. Do you do you get much work that would be like I guess you'd call it service work, like after you go do a design and an install? that you're coming back and doing updating and, and things like that? Yeah, um, not always, but I do offer that. And there is, there's a maybe a quarter of the jobs, as I explained, you know, the pruning aspect of apple trees or, you know, we might not have the budget to do the full design this year or install this year. So we'll try and space it out based on the customer's budget to get maybe the soil prep first and a few ground covers or the trees if we want to get get those growing as soon as possible. So, and I guess I, did, I haven't really <clears throat> offered fall cleanup and things like that in the past. So that's not something that's more ongoing, but usually uh, if we do a good job, so I've had customers that have moved and then want a new yard that's better than the last one, you know? Yeah, gotcha. Um, what what have you, you know, have you leveraged any sort of government grants? You know, you mentioned about nonprofit grants aren't just for nonprofits, like for stormwater or anything like that. Yeah, actually, stormwater is huge right now. So um, a lot of the suburbs in, in the Des Moines area are offering resi- residential cost share on some of these projects like a rain garden, rain barrels, um, bioswales. So those are things that we can integrate into the design so that they can maybe, the homeowner can expand their budget or expand their project and budget a little bit. So we've done some rain gardens, you know, where they're typically kidney-shaped and filled with some wildflowers. And we've done those on contour and we've elongated them. So they're basically acting like swales. Um, You just have to get your, make sure you hit all the check boxes on on the rain garden form. Um, But it's really, really 
a nice opportunity for the customers because then they're catching that storm water and getting it cleaned up before it goes down to the storm sewer and the waterways. So that's probably the biggest one I've taken advantage of, or not like taken advantage of, but that we've leveraged and been able to work through. And then there's a group out of the Fish and Wildlife Service down at Neil Smith. It's the People for Pollinators Project. So they'll provide um, native prairie plugs for public organizations or businesses. Unfortunately, they don't do it for residential, but some of the business projects we've done, um, they provide uh, an education event for the employees if you want them to. Um, and then they provide plugs and dibble sticks. So they're the, the planting um, poles with a little heavy plug on it. So you can just stick those into the ground and then the plug slides out of the tray and goes right in the the hole that you made with the dill. So those plugs, if you can get those pre-ordered, those are free for the businesses. So that, you know, we can get in there, we can do the site prep, we can get the trees and the shrubs all set up. And then if we can use uh, coneflower and yarrow and blazing star, uh, plants that are, can be medicinal, you know, they can be like echinacea, they're pollinator magnets and then that's going to benefit your your food forest and pollination it's it's a win-win and then they're getting notoriety and they're helping the pollinator uh habitat species expansion too um i i saw in your notes you say you you used to listen to this podcast every day what happened man i i lost you oh, well i guess going back to the balancing act and keeping all your plates spinning uh it just kind of something that i couldn't listen to while i'm necessarily digging a hole all the time and it just I did end up getting some more uh, podcasts too so then I just got overwhelmed so I try and hit the highlights of the week as best I can and even at one and a half speed uh, you can work your way up to that it's it's a lot to it's a lot to keep up with I don't know if you listen to other podcasts probably not your probably hands are as full as mine uh, but uh, one I listened to Ben Falk was talking on Daniel Vitalis's rewilding podcast and that's how I got introduced to that one and so this guy is a former vegan talking about getting back to rewilding, kind of his experience with getting back to hunting. So I listened to a couple of his lately, but I just got to gotta get more road time, I guess. Yeah, I, I seem to have a, a, a poor business design. I inspire people to become entrepreneurs, and then they don't have time to listen anymore. It's <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, man. So, I mean... If if somebody else was out there and was thinking about doing this, I mean, wh what would you advise them uh, as, as far as, you know, due diligence, getting started, wh what have you? If if you could get in with an internship or something like that, I know uh, a couple of the bigger named permaculture design uh, outfits are doing internship or paid consultancy training. I'm, I think I was a little late hearing about those, and I, I probably should, could totally benefit from taking that now too, but those might be great opportunities. Or if you can find someone doing that uh, locally, just I've had guys say, can I just come work with you for a couple of days for free? And you just kind of tell me what you're doing and teach me while I'm working. And that's worked out really good. I hope it's worked out for them as well. Um, I had an internship or I had an intern with me last summer. He was doing ag business and didn't necessarily want to ride around with a seed rep all summer. So he he came and I got a lot of sweat equity out of him, and I hopefully he learned a lot too. He's a good guy if he wants to come back, you know. I'll probably hire him. Uh, so yeah, just get get experience. Um, 
get outside as much as you can. Uh, if you have any free time, go to the woods and just look at the the way the edge works, the the different plants that are there. You know, they're going to be native to your area or at least introduced and plant ID, you know, learn their habits. I guess if you can get on a construction crew and anything like that too, um, it's all good muscle memory stuff to have. And then look at water, look at the way the water flows in your area and the way the storm sewers are set up and what's working and what's not working. And then just, just do it, I guess. I would think like a really good bit of experience might be working in conventional landscaping as well. Um, oh, definitely. Because it's yeah. not, just forget that it's not permaculture. There's, there's two sides. It's just understanding permaculture. And then there's the business aspect of it, right? Like customer management, yep. sales, interaction, running a crew, you know, profit and loss statements, things like that. Like basically a regular landscaper does everything you're doing from a business standpoint. You're just using a different design approach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Plus just the, you know, a lot, even with the permaculture uh, systems we're putting in, we're putting in uh, natural edging, we're putting in stone edging, we're doing retaining walls. So those, those are all transferable skills. Definitely. What, what, when you get done with a job, like how much education is required so that the customer is able to actually, you know, take care of it, understand it, harvest, you know, are you putting in, you know, just basically some fruit trees and stuff like that, and then and then doing basically landscaping in an all-natural way? Uh, are you doing anything where, you know, you're putting in systems that eventually are designed for them to do their own annual gardening with? I mean, what is a typical install really like? Um, we, we do the typical gardens. Um, I don't do a lot of coaching with those. Um, generally, the people that want a new garden kind of, are dabbling in it or have a good idea of it. They just want new beds. Um, the We will, you know, kind of give an overview of the plants. We'll tell them what interactions the plants are doing, uh, clovers, fixing nitrogen, the comfries, to help get the fruit trees established. So we'll give them the chop and drop regimen while the plants or while the tree's still trying to get a foothold. Um, this is the first year we're looking at doing some garden maintenance and consulting, like coaching program. That'll be a fair amount of time commitment um, with that, the coaching aspect. Um, but generally for the installs, it's we give them their Tree Guild 101 at the install from there. And then we, we do offer some classes uh, outside of the, their personal landscape too. And, uh, so you do you get most of your business through, like I said, social media and referrals. Like, so do you have a website like people can see more about what you're doing? Yeah, abundantdesign.com is where we have everything. Kind of that's the headquarters. Um, we've also got uh, Facebook. Where we don't put everything off of Facebook on the website and the blog. Um, so I'll share some articles and things like that on the Facebook page, and that's Abundant Design Iowa on Facebook. Well, very cool, man. I appreciate you being with us today. We'll uh, make sure there's a, a link in the show notes so people can get on over and, and see your uh, site and uh, maybe connect with you locally. I'm sure you'd love to hear from people locally uh, that would be interested in uh, contracting your services or even people that just maybe want to uh, meet up and talk about permaculture. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, thanks for having me on and appreciate your time. You know, it's, it's two subjects I'll probably never get tired of discussing business and permaculture. 
And I think if you can run your business from a permaculture design standpoint, I mean, if it has nothing to do with you know permaculture, agriculture, anything like that, I mean, I don't care what your business is. If you apply permaculture principles to business, business runs better. And you build loyalty in your audience uh, or your customer base or what have you. That's what we try to do here. And uh, on that note, if you like what we're doing, if you enjoyed today's interview, if you're looking for, forward to the show tomorrow and show Friday and, you know, bug out show with uh, Steve Harris next week, that's going to be awesome as we continue that series. And all the stuff that we do here, you know, one real easy way to support us is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do is when you're going to buy something online, cruise on over to tspaz.com and see if you can buy it from through there. If you buy anything through T-SPAS, you help support our show. And one thing you'll find there is all my Amazon reviews. Today I have a very inexpensive product for you, but if you don't have these, they belong in your kitchen. You know, I love to cook. It's one of my great passions. It's permaculture, hunting, fishing, cooking. I, those are my you know big ones. Liberty, obviously, uh, too. But, I mean, it's a thing to do, right? And... When you're cooking, one of the best ways you can really add flavor to stuff when you're cooking meat, and you know I cook meat more than I cook anything else, is basting. So you get that, you know, I've seen people, they try to make barbecue, and they take like chicken while it's raw, and they put barbecue sauce and throw it on the grill, it just burns, right? First of all, don't use the barbecue sauce out of a, a, a jar. Make up a sauce that's like a barbecue-like sauce, and do it at the end, and then just, you know, cook it into the meat a little bit, and then maybe cook it till it's a little bit crisp, and don't let it burn, right? That's... That's how you add massive flavor to meat. If you want flavor in the meat, marinate it. If you want it on the outside of the meat, baste it at the end of the cook. Well, if you're going to do that, you need a brush. You don't baste it with your thumb. That's kind of stupid, right? So you need a brush. Now, here's my problem. The best effect I've ever had with any kind of a brush, other than like a big mop, if you're doing a barbecue mop, is the silicone bristle brushes. They hold the, the whatever you're basting with really, really well, and they apply it perfectly. There's a problem with them, though. Almost every one I've ever seen is like it's made out of metal, and it's got a silicon brush, and it sticks on the metal, right? Like you can pull it off, and inevitably that silicon stretches, and it falls off. So you take your, your jar of baste, and you're all happy, and you stick your brush in there, and you pull it out, and the head of your brush is in there, or it falls off, and it's laying on the grill, or it falls through. You know what I mean? It's just not cool. Well, I found this set of brushes a couple of years ago. It was in my show about items that you should have in your prepper kitchen. It's made by a company called Zycome, Z-I-C-O-M-E. You get four of them for eight bucks. It's actually seven dollars a change. Call it eight bucks, two bucks a piece. Now, what makes theirs different? It's, you know, really genius thing, right? Really calm. How do you get the head of the brush not to fall off? Make it one piece. They're a solid piece of silicon. The handle and the head are fused together. They can't fall off because it's one piece. Genius. I don't know why nobody else thought of that. Somebody by now probably has because the Chinese copy everything that anybody does well. But at four for eight bucks, why would you look elsewhere? They're also multicolor. And I know you might be like, well, I don't really care. You might care if you're doing multiple base because check this out. What if instead of just making base that you brush on your food... Right, You make up some different sauces and put them on the table let people baste their own food while they're eating it. Well, that's fine as long as you're not mixing like the really hot one with the mild one. So by having a brush for each one, I don't know, it's kind of cool, right? Anyway, to me, they had me at, it doesn't fall apart in four for eight bucks. 
Check them out. They're on T-SPAS today. They're reviewed as my item of the day on the, on the main website at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And again, anytime you do your shopping at T-SPAS, you help support us. And I've got a bonus for you today. I always try in these things to like bring you something special. So I'm, I'm giving away today, and you can go look it up. You know, I'm not big on recipes. You just understand how things work together. But I gave you a recipe for this to get you started in the right direction. This is like my go-to base for things like chicken, quail, wings, any kind of light meat, pork. It's great on pork. Here it is. It's so simple. Three tablespoons of soy sauce, one teaspoon, make sure you have a teaspoon of Worcestershire, right? Two tablespoons of hot sauce. I really like a brand called Cholula. I have a link to it in the show notes. Five tablespoons of jalapeno-infused olive oil. Cut a bunch of jalapenos up, put them in some olive oil, let them sit there for a couple weeks. That's all you got to do with this. Um, five tablespoons of white wine, And one tablespoon of mustard. One tablespoon of mustard. Plain yellow is fine for this. You put it all in a jar and you shake the shit out of it. Right? And then you stop shaking you look at it. It should not, the oil should not separate from everything else. Okay? Um, and then you base that onto your food. It's fantastic. It's just a fantastic thing. But I'll tell you a trick, what's going on here. Why the mustard? It ain't for the flavor. It's for a process called emulsification. Remember I said it shouldn't separate? Let's say you made this, you leave the mustard out. When you shake it, immediately it separates. Well, it can't go on and distribute all that wonderful flavor evenly if it's separate. If you don't like the flavor of the mustard, a little hack we've learned recently from Chef Keith is you use them a quarter to maybe a half of a teaspoon in this of dry mustard powder. It'll have less mustard flavor because it won't bring the vinegar to the party, and it'll emulsify just as well. You can also, when you're doing your emulsifications with, with mustard, add a little bit, shake, see if it holds, and just add just enough to the point where it stays emulsified, which means two, two liquids that normally would separate stay together. Check this stuff out at solidtspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is called Hazy Shade of Winter as we go through a week of Simon and Garfunkel. I'll tell you up front, I am not usually one that, that, that likes the remake of a song better than the original, but, you know, my girl Susanna Haas and the Bangles, they did this in the 80s, and it was a huge hit. I think it went to number two for them. Uh, they actually met Paul Simon at a concert one time. I was reading on Song Facts about this, and Susanna said she talked to him a little bit about it. I was a little nervous, because, like, when Simon and Garfunkel did this song, it went up to, like, 17. Uh, and when the, when the Bangles did it, it went up like, number two, right? Uh, but, you know, without the original, there wouldn't be the remake. And uh, let's say I'm soft on the subject there anyway. But because uh, I was a, a kid in high school in the 80s. And if you were a kid in high school in the 80s, the Bengals, Susanna, I mean, it was just the way it was, right? Anyway, but I, I do like the original, too. And the, the point of the song, I said at the beginning of the show, you know, it really, it really drives home the tick-tock of the clock. The whole point of this song is that what they're saying is they were looking for, like, The perfect, right? The, the, the perfect dream or the perfect accomplishment or the perfect thing or the perfect person to be with. And because you're holding out for perfect, now you're getting to the end of life and you're running out of times to fulfill those dreams. Or perfect being the enemy of the good is kind of the way that I see this. And that, that's what ha the hazy shade of winter in this song is about. It's not actually about it being winter. It's about... Letting time get away from you and not accomplishing the things that you really want. You just keep telling yourself, there'll always be more. There'll always be more. There'll always be more time. And you know what? Eventually time runs out. 
So make the most of every minute of every day and go for the things that you really want. But also, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Sometimes good enough is better than not at all. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's a patch of snow on the ground. Look around. Leaves are brown. There's a patch of snow on the ground. Look around. Leaves are brown. There's a patch of snow on the ground.